Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your truth as we look into your word today. We bring our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I was real brave this morning. I told Seth Carter, I said, Seth, I've put my sermon notes on the pulpit. Don't move them. I should never have planted that thought in Seth's mind. But he, he was good. Thank you, Seth. <clears throat> Tom Lowell and I have a real incentive to pray for one another. Um, if uh, Ross is going to be waived for an occasion, Tom will pray for me that I don't get sick and I'll pray for Tom, you know. And so Tom, I, it's, I guess it's my turn this morning. I wonder uh, if any of you like poetry. You don't have to raise your hand. But if you like poetry, you're in luck this morning. And if you hate poetry... You're in luck this morning. Because this morning we're going to look at a poem that's in the greatest collection of poetry that's ever been written. And it's the book of Psalms in the Old Testament of the Bible. And many of you have probably memorized at least one of these poems. I had the privilege of speaking at Mavis Week's uh, memorial service on Friday. and, And I was reading the 23rd Psalm. And as I was reading... Off to my right, I noticed one of Mavis's friends, her name was Hilda, was mouthing the 23rd Psalm with me as I read it. And if push came to shove, many of you could stand up and give all six verses by memory, at least a couple of big chunks of memory out of that Psalm and probably others. Um, 23rd Psalm is an amazing and beautiful poem, but we're not going to look at it this morning. But the whole collection of poetry in the book of Psalms to me is amazing in so many ways. And uh, I want to mention three of those ways. First of all, to me it's an amazing collection of poetry because it contains expressions of every emotion that we could ever have. Uh, In fact, the great Protestant reformer John Calvin said this about the book of Psalms. He said, it is... An anatomy of the parts of the soul. No, he said it this way. It is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Some have come this morning with joy overflowing in your heart. Well, there's a psalm in there that will express that joy. Some of us have come this morning and you're in the darkest place, perhaps, that you have ever been in your life. And we find in the book of Psalms words that help us to express any and all of our dark emotions. Wherever you are in life this morning, your name is on at least one of the Psalms. The Psalms are also amazing to me because of their structure as Hebrew poetry. Uh, They are beautifully, artfully, thoughtfully, carefully crafted to communicate God's unchanging truth And I would just encourage you, as I encourage myself, slow down when you read them. Read them thoughtfully and prayerfully and just slow down and let the beauty of the poem be used to introduce you to the beauty of God and the beauty of His truth. 
And this leads me to a third amazing thing about this collection of poems. This collection of poetry is amazing because the words in these poems are God's words. The poetic devices that are used enable the writers to express amazing truths that God has revealed to us about Himself, His world, and His relationship to His people. The words of these poems are true and will always be true. The words of these poems are more up to date than this morning's newspaper. So I want to dig in a little bit to one of them this morning, and it's Psalm 62. And I would encourage, if you haven't already, to find it in your your Bible. But also, I want you to take the insert that's in the bulletin that has Psalm 62 on it. Because in a minute, I'm going to ask us to read it, uh, response, read parts of it responsibly. And I want us to be in the same translation. So if you'll have that insert along with your, uh, your Bible, that would be helpful. Psalm 62 is in a series of four Psalms, beginning with Psalm 61 that are linked together by a common theme of strong reliance on God for deliverance in the face of great danger. Psalm 62 is a poem of trust in the midst of troubled times. Some have noted that verse 7 is at the center of this poem. And in this verse, we see a central thought or maybe like a summary statement of David's trust in God alone in his troubled times. Let's read these encouraging words in verse 7. Let me read them to you. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now these words sound to me like they would be beautiful on the plaque on a wall or inside of a Hallmark greeting card. But I can assure you that this verse was much more than a cliche to King David. Because it came out of a time of great, great trouble in his life. And I want you to notice how verse 7 begins and ends. Kind of an inclusio around the verse. Uh, It begins this way, on God. And it ends this way, God. This verse is enclosed with references to God. David wants us to understand that only God is his source of security, his significance, and his well-being. It's only rooted in God. And in Psalm 62, David expresses his trust in God alone. Now, there are 12 verses, and in these 12 verses, I want to focus on three things about David's trust, beginning with verses 1 through 4, and I want us to look at David's firm confession of his trust in God alone. And I want you to read responsibly just these four verses. I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm going to ask you to join in with me on verses 2 and 4. I'll begin verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? 
like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. What a confession of trust in God only in troubled times. And in David's confession of trust, we see uh, where or how David's trust was focused, how his trust was manifested, why his trust was needed, why his trust was strong, and how his trust affected his outlook on life. It did all those things. Look at verses 1 and 2. The focus of David's trust is emphasized by the repetition of one little word, and it's the word alone. And it could also be translated only. Look at verse 1. For God alone. Verse 2. He alone. And for emphasis in in the, uh, the Hebrew text, this little word in both verses comes at the very beginning of the sentence just to emphasize it. And it would go, it would be translated like this. Only toward God my soul waits in silence. Verse 1. Verse 2. Only God is my rock, my salvation, and my fortress. David's trust was singular, focused, and concentrated. David was not hedging his bets. It was only in God. David was not trusting something other than God. Neither was he trusting God and something else. Neither was he trusting God and someone else. He said, it's only God. Only God is my rock. And we see how this trust was manifested in verse 1 and where it says, literally, only toward God my soul is silence. That's how the verse literally reads. And in the verse we read, for God alone In the translation we read, for God alone my soul waits in silence. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but when we face, when I face times of trouble, my soul can tell me all kinds of resources I need. Or my soul can tell me all kinds of things that need to change in my circumstances. But David says here, only toward God my soul is Silence. David's trust was manifested in a quiet rest, a silent submission. It was not a fatalistic recognition, but an active trust in God that resulted in a heart that was quietly resting in God and waiting for God to do what God alone could do. And we see that David had this quiet rest because of what he said in verse 2. Only God is my rock. Only God was his salvation. Only God was his fortress. And in verse 7, he said God was his refuge. I love these word pictures that David uses. Rock, fortress, refuge. Uh, David was well acquainted with the rugged terrain of the Judean wilderness because he spent a lot of time there running from people. Uh, You've heard it said of uh, the Apostle Paul that when he went into a city, he would never ask, how are the motels? He would say, how are the jails here? (laughs) 
Well, King David, when he was out in the Judean wilderness, it was never, how are the motels out here? It was, how big are the rocks out here? How, uh, do you have any caves out here? Do you have any fortresses similar to Masada that's down in that Judean wilderness? Didn't have Herod's stuff there then, but it was still a good fortress. David knew how important rocks, fortresses, caves, refuges, and hiding places were. But he wants us to know that his ultimate place of refuge and security was not in a cave or behind a big rock, but it was in God. In David's mind, God was his only source of salvation and deliverance. And of course, we know why David needed this expression of trust. We see it in verses 3 and 4. As was often the case, David was threatened by vicious enemies who didn't just want his throne, they wanted his life. And we see that word alone or only again in verse 4. Remember that word only, verses 1 and 2? You see it again in verse 4. And again in verse 4, in this poem, again, he puts it at the beginning of the sentence. Only they plan to thrust him down. Just as David focused only on God trusting him, his enemies focused only on destroying David. And they did it with deceit and hypocrisy. They blessed with their mouths, but they cursed inwardly. God had put David in a place where David was very much aware of his need to trust God. Maybe God has you in that place this morning. But God had also graciously brought David to a place of heart where he could say, only toward God my soul is silence. Only God is my rock, my salvation, and my fortress. And this trust affected David's whole outlook on life. He said at the end of verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken. I don't know if you noticed when we read those verses together, when we got down to that verse, I, I read, I shall not be greatly moved. I, I, years ago, I memorized this psalm in the King James and I can't get away from it. That's the way it is in the King James, but it reminds me of a song that we sang at Akron Ridge Baptist Church Years and years ago when I was a little kid, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. That's my only solo. (laughs) But that was David's outlook on life with God as his only source of salvation. But he says, I shall not be greatly moved. Now all of David's poems don't begin like this poem. And I'm thankful for that. Let me give you an example. Let me give you another, just a little bit of another poem that David wrote. How long will you forget me, O God, forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my heart, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies be in triumph over me? That's Psalm 13. That's the same guy, David. And he's saying, how long, Lord? How long? How long? Now this reminds me of something. Like David, we don't always find ourselves quietly resting before God, if we're honest. Neither did David. 
But also, like David, God is able to bring us to a place of quiet rest and trust in God. And the Lord can do that for His people over and over and over again. And He did it for David over and over and over again. And I believe the next four verses in this psalm gives us, give us, the next four verses give us some hints as to how David was brought to a place of trust and quiet rest. And I want you to read these four verses with me responsibly, if you would please. They're verses 5 through 8. And I'm going to begin with verse 5. And if you'll join me in verses 6 and 8. I'll begin in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him in all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. I'm so glad to hear us read that eighth verse together. Trust in Him at all times, O people, as we talk to one another. These verses remind me that trust is not uh, static. Trust in the Lord is dynamic. It engages our mind, our emotions, our will, our whole being, and is needed for every situation and circumstance in life. We need encouragement to continue trusting God. And that's what David does in these four verses, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He gives strong encouragement to continue trusting in God alone. I believe this is one of the hints as to how God brought David to a place of quiet rest. Because in verses 5 and 6, David is talking to himself. You ever talk to yourself? Has anybody ever caught you talking to yourself? That's kind of embarrassing. David knew how to encourage himself. David knew how to talk to his soul. When his soul was telling him, you need this, you need that, you need things to change, you need... David knew how to talk back to his soul. These two verses, 5 and 6, are like a refrain or a thematic statement in this poem. They are very similar. Did you notice this? They are very similar to verses 1 and 2 where David confesses his trust. And just like verses 1 and 2, verses 5 and 6 begin with that word only, alone. Verse 5, Only for God, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Verse 6, Only He is my rock and my fortress, my, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. I even wrote in my notes here, I shall not be moved, (laughs) shaken, both. Even though these verses are very similar to verses 1 and 2, there's some differences, and I want to look at two differences. In verse 1, David is affirming his trust. He's saying, my soul is waiting in silence. My soul toward God is silence. It's indicative. This is the way it is. But in verse 
Five, it's an imperative. It's a command. Here, he's admonishing himself. He's talking to himself and he's saying, only for God, my soul, wait in silence. David is preaching to himself. And we face new challenges sometimes every moment that need a new expression of trust. And probably we need a new sermon on trusting the Lord at that time of need. Like David, we need to be encouraged and we need to encourage ourselves to trust. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City and has written some great books. And He gave a little uh, tweet the other week that I came across and he said, the best defense to the lies we hear from our from within our hearts is the rehearsal of truth. Scripture. God's truth. Somebody has said the best sermons you will ever hear are the ones you preach to yourself if they're true. David was preaching to himself. Another difference in this refrain is at the end of verse 6. You notice in verse 1 where David said, I shall not be greatly Shaken or moved? Well, the word, he puts the word greatly in there. And it's at the end of the sentence for emphasis. David says, I shall not be shaken greatly. (laughs) But here at the end of verse 6, he just says, I shall not be shaken. And I think we see an indication here of David's faith growing. He doesn't put the qualifier in there. I won't be greatly shaken. He just says, I won't be shaken. The Lord is growing His faith. And then we see David encourages others to trust the Lord. Verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Another command. First of all, He commanded Himself to wait. Now He commands others To trust in Him at all times, O people. There is no time when we don't need to trust. We need to trust in times of pain and adversity, like David, but also in times of pleasure and prosperity. And then David continues in verse 8 with another command. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. You know, to me, the amazing poems in the book of Psalms encourage us to pour out our hearts to God, but also give us words to help us do that. And that's another sermon for another day. But David says, trust people. Talking to the congregation, trust in Him in all times. Pour out your heart before Him. Where does the Lord have you this morning? What are the circumstances in your life? Do they seem to threaten your security or sense of significance or your well-being? David, King David, often found himself in those kinds of circumstances. And he would not like to hear me say this, but I'm glad God put him in those circumstances. He may scold me when we get to heaven for saying that. But here's why. Because we wouldn't have a lot of the Psalms we have if God not put him there, first of all. And because... God brought him to a place of quiet rest and trust. And in those poems, 
He encourages us to the same thing. Trust in Him, He says to me, at all times, David. Trust in Him at all times. In verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, He is continuing. He is encouraging us to continue to trust in the Lord. And then the last four verses, I believe David gives us, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, he gives some rationale. Some convincing rationale for continuing to trust in God alone. And I want you to read these four verses with me responsibly. I'll begin with verse 9, and if you'll join me in verses 10 and 12. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put the no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. Interesting what David says in verses 9 and 10. Part of David's rationale for trusting only in God is his demonstration of the folly of trusting in mere human beings who are lighter than a breath, fleeting like a breath, he says. From the lowest to the highest of all mankind, they are but a breath on the scale. No fallen human being, whether high or low, is worthy of trust. Also, no human scheme that we could conceive will bring lasting security or significance or well-being. And also, no amount of money that we could illegally or legally gain could achieve lasting security, significance, or well-being. He said, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. And then he tells us something about what he had learned about God. What causes trust to occur and then to continue and then to grow? What causes trust in a person's heart to happen? Listening to God. Really listening to God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And David said in verse 11, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. David said, God spoke, I heard it. It hits you. Power belongs to God. And to you, Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. David learned three things about God. Power belongs to God. Steadfast love belongs to God. Justice 
belongs to God. God is powerful, God is loving, and God is just. Power belongs to God. He is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible with Him. He can and He will carry out His plan. All power that we have is limited and derivative. It comes from God. But power belongs to God. You can trust someone who has all power and for whom nothing is impossible. But steadfast love belongs to God. This word for steadfast love here occurs in the book of Psalms 122 times. Steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated unfailing love. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. In Psalm 23, it's translated mercy, surely goodness, and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has pledged Himself to those who trust Him. And you can trust someone who is wholeheartedly committed to you and to your good with an unfailing, steadfast, stubborn love that will not let you go and that will not go away. God is just. You can trust someone who is always right, just and fair, and who is always in control. David didn't have to worry about, okay, what am I going to do to make sure that my enemies get their comeuppance? Is that how you say it? Get what they deserve? David didn't have to worry about that because God is the only one who is capable of meeting out the right kind of judgment in the right proportion at the right time. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will do what's right. David learned, he heard God and learned that God is powerful, God is loving, God is just. Now think about it just for a moment. In the great history of redemption, David lived on the other side of the cross. We live on this side of the cross. King David's greater son, King Jesus, came. In fulfillment of promise to King David that you're going to have a king on the throne forever and ever and ever. And that's fulfilled only in King Jesus. King Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, the son, the greater son of King David. And he came in the fullness of time. And though he were king, King David, excuse me, King Jesus went to a cross. And on that cross, God displayed his righteous justice. Justice. David learned that God is just. On the cross, God poured out His wrath on His Son, King Jesus, because Jesus was bearing our sins. But God, being just, poured out wrath on Jesus. And on the cross, we see God demonstrating His love. He poured out His wrath so He could pour out His love on those who trust Jesus. God is pouring out His love on His people today. And at the cross, God displayed His great power through His death, burial, and resurrection. King Jesus 
powerfully canceled out our sin debt. Jesus destroyed death. And Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, the ultimate enemy of our soul. And David knew that God is powerful. David knew that God is loving. David knew that God was just. But on this side of the cross, folks, what a demonstration we have of that power and that justice and that love in David's greater son, King Jesus. And by the grace of God, God can teach me and you to say from the heart, on God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. I read another tweet a couple of weeks ago that I had to write. It just jumped off the, the screen at me. And it was written by a guy who grew up in North Carolina, in Graham. And he went to uh, Franklin, Tennessee and started a church there. And the church grew by leaps and bounds. And uh, many of the Nashville uh, musicians were members in Scotty Smith's church, uh, including Stephen Curtis Chapman and some of the others. But he sends out tweets and he's written some books. And, and this is what he said. And I, I love the way he put it because it kind of wraps up some of the things I've tried to say this morning to my heart. And he put it this way, Eve, quote, evening, early evening quote to self. That's the way he starts it. Early evening quote to self. And this was his quote. Nothing happened in the world today or in my life outside of God's commitment to His glory and my good. That's the kind of God you can trust. Who is that much in control and who is that much in love with His trusting people. May I close with David's words. Trust in Him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Joe Fort, would you come please and lead us in prayer? And as we go, let's pray for one another. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. After Joe prays, we'll sing God be with you till we meet again. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we sing song, ancient words. And this morning we heard ancient words from your servant David. We remind him once again that we have a Savior that will never leave us nor forsake us. We can trust you in all things. We can rejoice in all things that you are always with us. We want to pray this morning for those that are on our prayer sheet, with those that need healing, those that need comfort. We pray that your presence will be with each one of them today and that they would feel your presence. We also pray for our mission of the week, Fran and Judy Smith, as they labor in Guatemala. We pray that your blessings will be upon them, that uh, you would uh, keep them in your care as they teach young pastors in that part of Guatemala and everything to 
pastor and lead the people in their local churches. Go with us now as we depart from this way, this place. We pray that you would be with us and would be salt and light in the community and that those around us would see Christ in us. In Jesus' name we pray.